This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners. As you all know, we have this broken healthcare system. Too often, individuals today experience care that's fragmented, duplicative, wasteful, and confusing. In accountable care, it aims to improve the healthcare experience for real people by encouraging care coordination and creating teams that communicate with one another and supporting individuals in their care journey with services that address their medical and non-medical needs. We're on a mission in this value-based care movement to accelerate the adoption of accountable care and payment models associated with the improvement of the, the human experience so that we can improve healthcare for all individuals and communities. And that comes down to having a, a way to advance and advocate for policies. In order to have widespread adoption of accountable care, we have to have policies that create those better healthcare outcomes and experiences across the country. And I'm so excited to have a, a show this week. We're talking about Accountable for Health. They're a nonpartisan national advocacy and policy analysis organization that's accelerating the adoption of effective accountable care. We have on our show this week, Mara McDermott. She's the chief executive officer of Accountable for Health, and she is an accomplished healthcare executive. She has such deep expertise in federal healthcare law and policy, including delivery system reform, physician payment and payment models. This is a conversation you definitely want to check out. Talked about Accountable for Health and the work that Mara and her member organizations are doing to advance effective health policy. We had such a great conversation on what it's going to take to dispel the confusion around what value-based care really means. We talk in depth about the comparison between the Medicare shared savings program and Medicare Advantage. We talk about this conversation that we're having now in the federal policy arena about MACRA 2.0. How do we reframe this policy for the future so that we, we can, can have continued progression in the value-based care movement? We talked about the advanced APM incentive model, the MIPS program. We talked about integrated specialty care and Medicaid transformation. And we talked about this upcoming event that's happening soon, Healthcare Value Week. So definitely tune in for the whole interview as you're going to get some great information about a free upcoming event. So let me stop talking. Let me now introduce you to Mara McDermott, CEO of Accountable for Health, as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Mara, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so great to be with you this week. Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm super excited for this conversation. Oh, me too. And I've been looking forward to having you on the Race to Value podcast for quite some time now. And you've been up to it a lot over these last few months. In early summer, you launched Accountable for Health or A4H, which is there to help accelerate the transition from fee-for-service to more accountable healthcare models. And this new organization and its broad and diverse membership focuses on advocacy, research, and education in support of effective, accountable care. And today, over 40 companies have joined A4H, demonstrating the enthusiasm for the goals of improving healthcare and drawing on a deep bench of members and policy experts like Mark McClellan and Melanie Bella. A4H is working closely with policymakers, prominent healthcare sector decision makers, and other stakeholders to demonstrate how accountable care improves healthcare experiences and outcomes 
for individuals and populations. And your vision for the organization is one where it'll be a leading force, accelerating continuous improvement and accountable care design and implementation, helping improve patient care across the country and addressing challenges and access and affordability. Mara, I just commend you for your leadership in founding A4H and designed accountable care delivery models have been improving people's lives across the country for decades, but this transformation is not easy and we need champions like A4H to advocate for faster, broader adoption. So I wanted to ask you, as this is a new organization, can you provide our listeners with an overview of Accountable for Health and who are some of your members and how will you be translating thought leadership to action and advocating for the benefits and value-based payment models? Sure, I'm happy to do that. And again, just really excited to be with you and have the opportunity to talk about this. So Accountable for Health, like you said, is a new organization we just launched in May. And one of the things that I think was a catalyst for the creation of Accountable for Health is this divide that I certainly feel, and I, and I believe you do too, where in the marketplace, where there are patients and their providers experiencing accountable care, there's an enormous amount of enthusiasm. And I think that is because we all, or our families and loved ones and friends, have experienced how bad it feels to have fragmented, uncoordinated care, right? Care that is driven by a fee-for-service reimbursement system where you're treated for the thing that you're presenting with, but not at, not your whole person health. And accountable care really offers a solution to a lot of those fragmentation problems, lack of coordination problems. And so in the marketplace with our member companies, we see so much enthusiasm for this idea and this concept. And then what, on the flip side of that, I would say in Washington, D.C., we were encountering a lot of folks for whom the notion of accountable care was brand new, right? Like every industry, there's been a ton of turnover here in Washington, D.C., lots of new staff on Capitol Hill who maybe had heard the terms value-based care before, but were not immersed in delivery system reform. And that was a problem Accountable for Health really wanted to tackle, was that educating the Hill, getting them, Hill staff, administration staff, folks in the D.C. environment, as fired up and passionate about accountable care as our members are in, in delivering that care on the ground. We see an enormous amount of pot potential opportunity in the policy space, whether that's for Medicare or Medicaid, across an entire spectrum of different types of models that create that accountability for cost and quality. And in terms of who our members are, we represent a broad swath of stakeholders in the accountable care environment. So that certainly includes organizations participating in accountable care organizations, total cost of care models with other types of payers, um, specialty care enablement companies, data and technology companies, and consumer organizations who are I think going to be really helpful in shaping the policy around accountable care. So that's our membership. The full member list is on the website for folks who are listening who are curious. So would encourage you to check check us out at accountableforhealth.org if you want to learn more about that. But in terms of an overview, that's who we are and that's what we're working on. Thank you for sharing, Mara. In the genesis of every company lies a narrative where that passion converges with purpose and innovation scripts, the epic tale of the founding story. And this is a story that's not just in ideas, but in that relentless pursuit of turning a vision into a thriving reality. And I'm so excited about the work that you're doing there at Accountable for Health and uh, building this membership and really advocating for the needs of our industry and the patients to which are being served. And as I understand, Accountable for Health's our origin story is tied somewhat to that controversy from a few years ago with the global and professional direct contracting model that served as the precursor to the current ACO reach model and direct contracting was a progressive program that drew upon the best elements of prior CMS and CMMI value-based care initiatives, such as MSSP ACOs and next-gen ACOs and offered enhanced benefits for no additional cost while improving access to accountable primary care for Medicare beneficiaries that are suffering from that broken fee-for-service payment system and, and using many of the same operating levers as Medicare Advantage, such as capitation and beneficiary engagement incentives and benefit enhancements and pass-through benefits to preferred providers. There was a 
political firestorm around this program a few years ago, and critics of direct contracting claim that the program's main purpose was to serve and enrich private investors and incentivize risk adjustment coding. And I know the Medicare for All single payer constituency really led a coordinated attack on the program and wanted it to end before there was concrete evidence to prove that it does benefit patients providers in the Medicare system. And I remember thinking a few years ago when that was going down, the implications of canceling GPDC model it could be catastrophic for the value movement. And certainly that wasn't the case, but I wanted to ask you if maybe you could give us a look back into the accountable care advocacy world during the, the time of this heated debate, when we were seeing the potential for misleading criticisms. And, and to your earlier point, just people in Capitol Hill that didn't understand value-based care, this uh, sends a ripple effect in the industry where providers may lose trust in the government's commitment to transform healthcare. How did you use this moment to galvanize your vision and spearhead the founding of Accountable for Health so you could bring a, a wider range of perspectives to advance accountable care? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say the direct contracting scenario that you just laid out so perfectly was very eye-opening for me and many other people in Washington, D.C., right? Because like you described, and for me, direct contracting was the natural evolution of a series of advanced ACO options at the CMS Innovation Center, starting with the Pioneer, Next Gen, direct contracting, now ACO Reach. And it was very surprising to me that folks who had been longtime supporters of the CMS Innovation Center and longtime supporters of delivery system overall, delivery system reform overall, had such strong critique for this model and were calling for the immediate termination. And as we got deeper into the conversations in Washington, D.C. about what that was, I felt like so much of it was rooted in a misunderstanding of what accountable care organizations overall are trying to achieve, and in particular, what the CMS Innovation Center is trying to achieve in terms of transforming care delivery. And as we were able to have more in-depth conversations, I think we were able to clear up a lot of that misunderstanding, which was a huge relief. And then also to understand where some of the legitimate critique and concern might be, right? I think there was there were examples of confusion. I, I think it will almost make you laugh at this point because of your long history in the accountable care organization space and traditional Medicare. But one of the critiques that we heard all the time was these accountable care organizations, direct contracting entities, will prevent people, Medicare beneficiaries, from seeing the providers they want to see. It, it's another way to stint on care. As Eric, one of the one of the tools that ACOs do not have is the ability to limit services, right? They, these are traditional Medicare patients. They remain free to see any traditional Medicare provider they want. The ACO is trying to use right time, but that, that sort of restriction of care is not a tool in their toolbox. Anyway, so as we had those conversations and really explained what ACOs are and what they aren't, I think we we have gotten to a much better place and a much stronger educational level around these concepts on Capitol Hill. But it certainly, again, was just very surprising to me. And then I think just to pick up on one other thing you said in, in the framing of your question, our view certainly was that if one ACO model, one CMMI model goes down for political reasons like this, it would be devastating to the entire movement. Because if we are asking providers and others in this space to make tremendous investments and really um, do the work of transforming the delivery system. And if they thought that could all be taken away with a strike of a pen, I think we'd see a massive drop off in that type of investment, which is obviously not what we want. So there was a lot of risk involved um, in those conversations and certainly felt like things were a little bit touch and go for a while uh, at that time. But I think looking back today, we've learned a ton from that experience that we just cannot take this work for granted. We have to be out there doing the education all the time and explaining how accountable care is core to every healthcare objective in this country, right? If we want to um, tackle the really hard problems of the day, 
accountable care is integral to doing that from a delivery system perspective. I won't say that I'm glad that all that happened, (laughs) but I do think that we learned a ton from the experience and continue to build on those learnings today. Mara, thank you for sharing that. And there's definitely this common theme that I'm hearing around your work and advocacy, and that's to overcome the misunderstanding and advance education and key learnings to drive uh, transformation. And so much of this transformation, it's not unlike a movement like we see in civil rights or even gay marriage. This is uh, the transformation of our healthcare system, and it requires storytelling and advocacy and grassroots efforts to really create this new vision of what healthcare is. And with that said, as I think about the confusion of this transformation, the word value-based care in and of itself is really confusing. And BBC will never work unless people, including patients, understand the truest aims of the movement at a system level. Value doesn't mean cheap and poor quality like it does in the fast food industry. It's definitely not about rationing care like we saw with HMOs during the 1990s. Care delivery within a value-based construct is all about patient-centeredness, relationship-driven, tech-enabled care delivered by interdisciplinary teams with the appropriate alignment of incentives. It emphasizes convenient, coordinated, and outcomes-driven care. And right now, there's so much confusion with this term value-based care. I mean, patients definitely don't understand what it means. And even those in the industry get so caught up on the mechanics of the payment models that they often lose sight of the overarching aims to improve patient outcomes and experience and reduce disparities. So more given that your organization is focused on championing that greater understanding and adoption of accountable care to improve health outcomes and lower costs, how do we go about closing the knowledge gap about what value really means? And also, how do we remedy the, the disconnect from the level of enthusiasm on the ground to fix a broken healthcare system with the conversation in DC that's predominantly focused on just the cost side of the equation? Yeah, it's, it is a huge challenge. I think that the, to me, the most compelling thing about accountable care has always been the stories. And you mentioned that in your remarks as well. And I think it is really our job to explain and share as much as we possibly can the very real, very meaningful transformation that's happening on the ground. So I hear from our clinicians all the time, every day, stories about what healthcare delivery can be. And that is different providers who actually talk to each other. So you're not being bounced from place to place and getting the same test over and over again. You're like really frustrating things that happen to all of us when we access healthcare delivery. And I think it is sharing those, collecting those stories, sharing those stories, and really helping folks understand what's going on. You mentioned the focus on cost. I have to tell you, that is one of my biggest personal pet peeves right now is the focus on cost. Not because cost isn't important. I absolutely believe that saving money is important. And that is one of the core functions of these models to save money in a system that seems to just be increasingly spending more and more money. But there are so many other ways that we think about a successful care experience for ourselves as patients in the healthcare delivery system for, again, our families, our loved ones. And I think we really have work to do to bring that back into the conversation. So we have been, Accountable for Health has been thinking about this across a few different domains. What are just sort of the core functions of accountable care that we would want to look at if we're saying that something has succeeded or not succeeded? And those are expanding access. So things like after hours appointments and weekend appointments and social determinants of health, social need, addressing social need. Care coordination, making sure that gaps are closed, that you have smooth handoffs, that somebody doesn't leave the hospital with no idea what to do next, right? That they're going to leave the hospital. There's going to be a clear instruction about a meeting, follow-up appointment with a primary care provider. They're going to know what to do next. They're going to get their meds reconciled, all of those good things. Patient experiences. I think you you hear this all the time from the clinicians that you've worked with that there is a much better patient experience to be had. And we are hearing that from people all the time about how this compare and contrast be for service to accountable care and how the experiences can be better. 
And then of course, costs, we have to continue to look at costs, but that's really what the work that we've been doing is trying to build out the evidence base, which includes both collecting existing evidence and kind of repackaging it and then figuring out what new evidence needs to be developed. You didn't ask this, but I'll just get on my little soapbox for a minute to talk about the CMS evaluations of the different models. I think we got to a place over the last several years where the top line takeaway is, did the model save enough money to be expanded across all of traditional Medicare in the case of a CMS Innovation Center demo, or in the case of MSSP, did it save enough money to be deemed valuable to health in health policy terms. And I think that what we've found is if you can take the time to really dig into those evaluations, some of which in CMMI land are hundreds of pages long, there's really meaningful work in there. There's a really meaningful transformation of the way that care is delivered. And so that's something that we've been thinking about too, is how can we get a few layers deeper into the evaluations and serve as a translator to bring that information forward into the policy conversation about value-based care or accountable care. And so those are some things that we're thinking about. And then I'll just say, yes, on the language front, it's very hard because when we say value-based care, you and a delivery system transformation, we mean paying differently. We mean not abandoning the system that pays for everything that is done to you in favor of a system that pays for outcomes, for keeping me healthier. But that's not what everybody hears when they hear that term. They're hearing a wide variety of things, right? Drug pricing and precision medicine and genetic testing, lots of different things mean value <laughs> to different people. And so I do think we've got a, a fair amount of work around defining what it is we're talking about, coming to some more consistent language using the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, robust body of work around that and really pushing ourselves to be precise about what we're talking about. Said Mara, and I wanted to delve a little bit deeper into some of the payment models in this movement to value-based payment. Over the last decade, we've seen a lot of advancements being made through the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which serves traditional Medicare beneficiaries and ACOs, and the Medicare Advantage Program, which represents distinct approaches to healthcare delivery and reimbursement within the healthcare system. And in the MSSP, providers are collaborating to improve quality of care for these Medicare beneficiaries. They're working on reducing overall costs. And to the point you made earlier, you can't limit the care that's provided. It's an open, almost like a PPO type network. So there really has to be intentionality in the design of interventions and the appropriate infrastructure to succeed. And if they do, these ACOs are rewarded through these shared savings arrangements when they meet the quality and cost benchmarks. On the other hand, Medicare Advantage programs leverage private insurers to provide healthcare coverage within a managed care framework. And these programs often emphasize value-based payments and emphasize quality care and positive health outcomes as well. While the MSSP has a involves a collaborative model among healthcare providers, Medicare Advantage programs introduce more market-driven competition through these private insurers. And both are looking to enhance quality and efficiency, but they employ different structures and mechanisms to achieve these goals. So I wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with maybe a little bit more of a technical comparison between these two programs and in terms of beneficiary assignment, risk adjustment, benchmarking methodology at a high level, and also as a health policy advocate for accountable care transformation, how are you able to facilitate a nuanced understanding between the two programs and over to overcome some of the confusion and even some of the rhetoric that's out there right now? Yeah, this conversation has just reached new heights, right? The comparison between MA and the accountable care models or MSSP with the growth of MA, with it more than 50% of seniors in MA and the expected continuation of that growth. I think the whole conversation has changed from when I started doing this work 10 years ago, which is a very different environment for Medicare Advantage at that time. In terms of the comparison, I would say my view is that they're completely different, right? The economics are different. The way that the health plans are paid, their rate book is different. Their risk adjustment is uncapped. The risk adjustment in an ACO is capped. 
their marketing is completely different, right? People within organizations wearing pins. I, every time I turn on my TV, there's an ad for a Medicare Advantage plan. We've got folks, I think, with pretty forward-facing marketing on MA in a way that just doesn't exist for MSSP, where you can have one letter that goes to the beneficiary about a data opt-out and some signage and some other things. I do think CMS is making progress on that front, but it's, it is night and day difference to me in terms of advertising an MSSP versus advertising a Medicare Advantage enrollment opportunity. So I think it is like almost hard to even compare them because they are so different at this point. But that is something that is going to continue to need to happen from my perspective. One thing, one conversation around our table, I would say, is where do you believe the value-based payment or accountable care payment sits in Medicare Advantage? And I have heard, certainly heard people say, the health, the payment to the health plans capitated, that's the value-based arrangement. And then sort of government hands off, let the plan, let the plan manage its network the way that it wants and get the value for the consumer. And they're going to have to do that because there's open enrollment and stars and all those things. I had always thought about that actually differently, which is that the accountable care relationship is between the plan and its provider network. And if the MA plan is passing through a fee-for-service payment based on the physician fee schedule, that is something that we are trying to move off of because of the impact the way that care is delivered. And I think that there's more thinking to be done about that. What is the role? What is the look at how providers are being paid in Medicare Advantage? I think we are starting to see some increasingly studies that talk about the value-based care proposition in MA in that way, in the provider contracting way. How does all the MSSP work bleed over into MA and create really stronger, more coordinated delivery systems? How are we thinking about supplemental benefits in traditional Medicare, which is probably not even the right term, right? Supplemental benefits is like a MA feature, but as you mentioned, many of the Medicare Shared Savings Program and CMMI ACOs are offering things that we would think about in those benefit categories. And how are we making that information clear to seniors who are making a choice? So I think there's a lot of really interesting work to be done around this, this sort of framework of what is MA doing and how do you get the most value for a Medicare senior out of MA? What is MSSP doing? How do you get the most value for a Medicare senior out of MSSP? And then ultimately, how do you compare the two? How do you compare quality? How do you compare costs and other things that are important to a person making that election? And so I'm excited about the work to be done there. I think there's like a new chapter on that, especially with the growth of Medicare Advantage and it's and just its popularity. I think MSSP can learn a lot from MA in terms of the things that have worked in that program as well. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, I think Medicare Advantage is simply too big to ignore and as a lever for value in terms of the flexibility and innovation of benefit design and some of the interventions that are taking place uh, is encouraging to see that that there are some learnings to be shared as we look at these traditional Medicare ACOs as well. I wanted to shift gears a little bit and also talk about MACRA which is the Medicare Access and SHIP Reauthorization Act. Uh, this is closely tied to the concept of accountable care, aiming to shift that traditional fee-for-service reimbursement model towards a system that does reward healthcare providers for delivering high-quality and cost-effective outcomes. And this was a significant piece of legislation that was enacted in 2015, and it introduced that framework for reimbursing healthcare providers who participate in Medicare. And one of the key components of MACRA is the quality payment program, which includes you know, two tracks for eligible clinicians. You have the, the merit-based incentive payment system or MIPS, and then you have advanced APMs. When lawmakers in 2015, they created a, a 5% incentive to help providers move into new payment models such as ACOs or advanced alternative payment models or APMs to that encourage that higher quality, more efficient and cost-effective care. And that incentive has worked with nearly 300,000 clinicians receiving that incentive. And that's allowed them to make some of these investments in terms of the new payment models and expanding their care teams and developing programs to improve beneficiary care and adopting a population health infrastructure. And I'm concerned that absent the 5% incentive, which is, as I understand now, under the threat of expiration, 
that would invariably compromise some of the progress being made in value-based care transformation. And I know there's currently this bipartisan legislation that's being considered called the Value in Healthcare Act of 2023 that would make several important reforms to ensure advanced APMs continue to provide high quality care for the Medicare program and its beneficiaries. So Mara, I wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with your perspective on the short-term and long-term views of MACRA. What role can the Value in Healthcare Act play in the short term to create a full risk ACO option in the MSSP and extend that advanced APM bonus. And in the long term, what are some of the broader implications we should consider to ensure continued progression in the overall transformation of the healthcare delivery system? Yeah, we've been spending a lot of time on MACRA on Capitol Hill in particular, because like you mentioned, in the short term, the advanced APM bonus expires at the end of this calendar year. And that bonus had been at 5% for it expired at the end of 2022. It was extended for 2023. So 2023 performance, 2025 payment at three and a half percent. The three and a half percent now faces a cliff. It drops to a half a percent differential in the conversion factor for next year. And so what we've been trying to make very clear to members of Congress is that cliff effect that you know, like drop from five percent to three and a half percent to half a percent is incredibly damaging to the value movement because you want strong incentives to continue this work. As you've noted throughout, there's, we're seeing a ton of success in alternative payment models. I would say particularly in advanced alternative payment models where you have two-sided risk, which are the ones that qualify for that bonus. So we really want to keep that momentum going. Having a cliff effect with the bonus creates the opposite pressure, right? Pushes people back into fee-for-service. That is particularly true in the current environment where that MIPS pathway that you talked about, the merit-based incentive payment system, which is a pay-for-performance program in traditional Medicare that enables clinicians to qualify for an increase or decrease in their physician fee scheduled payments depending on how they perform on quality and cost and clinical practice improvements. That bonus, the maximum bonus today still sits at 9%. If we are all aligned that fee-for-service is not doing a great job of meeting our needs as a society for healthcare delivery, and that alternative payment models are making progress, I don't think anybody's here to say that they're perfect, but we are making progress. That is where we want to go. Having the incentives at half a percent for APM and 9% for fee-for-service makes no sense. <laughs> and so... We would like to see that flipped around. We would, you know, not not that the APM bonus needs to be at nine percent, but there should be a a larger bonus, a larger favorable differential for being an advanced APM as compared to being in MIPS. For some of your listeners, will probably be shaking their heads at me. The ones that follow MIPS closely and say the MIPS bonus, yes, on paper it's nine percent. Typically, providers only get a bonus or penalty of around plus or minus two. And I would just say that has been true until this year. This year, we are hearing for the first time about bonuses in MIPS of 8.25%. And so I think as word gets out about that, as we dig in more to figure out why that is, all of a sudden a massive swing from 2 or 3% to 8.25%. To me, there's just something deeper going on here, but it sends the wrong message that you can do better in a fee-for-service environment than in advanced APM. So Lots of work to do on that in the short term. The Value in Healthcare Act is one piece of legislation. There are other bills that would extend the bonus into next year or over two years. I would say the Value Act provision is our favored provision, which is a two-year extension and reinstatement, bringing the bonus back up to 5%, extending it for two years. So we would love to see that part of the Value Act passed in the short term. You referenced one other one of my other favorite provisions of the Value Act, the Full Risk Medicare Shared Savings Program provision, which would instruct CMS to create a full risk track in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. That has long been a favorite of mine because I used to do a lot of work with next generation ACOs. Some of your listeners may remember the next gen ACO model was terminated after CMS concluded that it didn't save enough money to be permanently expanded. One of the great features of NextGen was that per provider participants, the ACO, could share 
in 100% of its savings or losses. So a much more generous shared savings opportunity, also more risky on the downside. There are many providers who liked that full risk nature, like that it's a fee-for-service payment model underlying the ACO with still an opportunity to share in all of the savings that you create. There was a discount to ensure some money went back to CMS. And so that has been very popular. And the legislation, I think, reflects a longstanding bipartisan commitment to continue to evolve the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So we've been keeping an eye on that. I would just also mention that CMS did a request for information on that same concept of a full-risk ACO in the Medicare Shared Savings Program in the physician fee schedule rule this year. They took comments in. I think we're waiting to hear more from CMS at this point. Hopefully, fingers crossed, in next year's physician fee schedule rule. So more to come on that. And then to the second part of your question, long-term vision for MACRA, I and I'm guessing every other stakeholder in this space would like to get away from a place where we are annually trying to negotiate for an extension of the APM bonus and instead would like to see a long-term strategy around MACRA, an update. Some people on the Hill have been referring to it as a MACRA 2.0 conversation, but looking back at all the lessons that we've learned about how MIPS works and doesn't work, about how the APM bonus has worked and hasn't worked, what are the long-term things that we would want to see put into place to continue to drive the transformation forward to advanced alternative payment models? How do we make sure that we continue to improve upon that structure, taking into account all the lessons that have been learned since back in 2015? And even beyond, I would say, some of the pay-for-performance programs span back decades, right? And we're still on a learning trajectory there. So lots more work to do in the macro space. And that is something that Accountable for Health has been very active on. Mara, you really hit the nail on the head there. And it's such important work. And I'm very thankful that you're out there serving our constituents and really trying to raise awareness and education as we look at making health policy better to support the broader value movement. And as we're talking about this MACRA 2.0 conversation, there's one other thing that I think is really important, and that's how do we go about integrating specialty care and engaging specialist providers in accountable care? All those specialists account for that vast majority of healthcare spending, especially for patients with serious health conditions. They have not been directly engaged in many accountable care models. Specialists in hospitals do participate in bundle payment models for hospital and major procedural episodes, and their centers of excellence programs that are largely focused on common elective procedures and coordinated care models for advanced chronic kidney disease. But these models largely don't provide the incentives and supports for engagement in chronic disease management with the goal of preventing disease progression and avoiding hospitalizations and major procedures. And we clearly need to find a way for more inclusivity and engagement of specialists and value-based purchasing models in order to align financial incentives for coordinated longitudinal care for common conditions like musculoskeletal disorders and cardiovascular diseases to reduce the, the need for those major procedures and hospitalizations. And CMS has announced the strategy to implement short and long-term steps to better engage specialty care and longitudinal coordinated accountable care models. But I know many in the industry are skeptical. They're seems to be this eternal question in the value movement. How do we get the specialists involved? And I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Mara. Should we expect to see more mandatory payment models involving specialty care in the years to come? What else can be done in the specialty arena to enable accountable care, not only to improve care during a procedure or hospitalization, but also to support accountable care for those common serious chronic conditions? Yeah, this is another area where we've been spending a lot of time just trying to think about what makes sense from the perspective of the specialist. And so much of the first 10 years of Medicare ACO were really built around primary care. And there are some examples out there of engaged specialists, but certainly not enough examples of that. And not I don't even think enough kind of case studies for us to point to in terms of success. So we've been looking at new models like making care primary that have elements of specialist integration, right, where specialists can receive payments or are otherwise more integrated into the models in ways that I am hoping are going to be more attractive than what's been offered in the past. 
I, we're thinking about this in sort of a couple of different ways. So one is what is happening in the physician fee schedule to prepare or facilitate the movement of specialty providers into accountable care, the glide path, what are the initial steps we're taking through the MIPS value pathways or otherwise to try to get specialists moving in the direction of accountable care. The second one is how do you address accountable care within the models? What data can be provided to accountable care organizations to help with that specialist engagement? We've had a lot of conversations around our table about shadow bundles, right? Can you get the information about what a bundle would look like for your ACO with certain types of specialties or certain specialists in your geographic area? And then I think going all the way to the far spectrum of risk within ACO reach, what are what possibilities are there in either existing or future models around innovative payments to specialists, including subcapitation or upcase rates, other things that could create more of that stickiness and more of that engagement in existing accountable care models or future accountable care models. So I, I think a lot more to be done there. Of course, the other part of this conversation ties back to our last, last question around macro, which was that macro created the physician-focused payment model technical advisory committee, the massive mouthful of words, the PTAC, that was tasked with bringing forward specialty care models that CMS would then, you know, adopt and test. And that largely has not happened. And so I think there is still a fair amount of work to be done in this area. It is so important, as you mentioned, to make sure that we're integrating all of the care for a person and not just the primary care services. And so how are how do we tackle that is really going to be a next iteration for us and something that we're working on. We have a committee on specialty care that is tackling this very issue. And then I did want to just come back to your point on mandatory models. Obviously, Liz Fowler, the director of the CMS Innovation Center, has been very vocal about her interest in mandatory models. We have we discussed this. We responded to a request for information from CMS about mandatory models. And our, and our thinking is that what you first want are a bunch of people to opt in to provide accountable care through an existing accountable care organization or other model, like building on the existing opportunities. Then if there are people who remain who do not want to participate or haven't elected to participate in a model, you want to use mandatory to pick up some of those. And I'm just, I think we're very intrigued by the timing of all that, how those different pieces come together in terms of changes to the physician fee schedule, thinking about new models, thinking about integration into existing models, and then mandatory and all the political realities that come with that, right? Everybody loves to beat up on CMMI that it hasn't saved enough money, but every time they put forward a mandatory model, it seems to get shut down, which would certainly help them, would have helped them save more money had those models been tested. So I think we're about to embark on another one of those conversations and will be interesting to see how it plays out this time. Indeed, Mara. And one other thing that as I'm thinking about as we make this uh, slow transition to value-based care and reach that critical mass, we need to think about how do we get uh, Medicaid managed care organizations involved in promoting uh, capitated payment models and quality-based assessments. We saw uh, California uh, in the 1970s is the first state to test out these Medicaid managed care models. And nearly 50 years later, most state Medicaid programs have adopted this model for their beneficiaries. And many state MCOs have adopted a value-based approach, employing a capitation model to cover beneficiary needs by incorporating population health efforts to address chronic disease management needs and incentivizing high-quality care, implementing a value-based care approach. And as we're seeing Medicaid costs continue to rise, value-based payment is clearly gaining traction as Medicaid payment models and CMS aims to transition most of those Medicaid beneficiaries into an accountable care relationship by 2030. That's the big goal there. And with more than 70% of Medicaid beneficiaries enrolled in managed care, CMS can't reach that goal if Medicaid ACOs only focus on the fee-for-service population as most Medicare ACOs do. This really requires an understanding of 
how ACOs can function in a Medicaid managed care population and incorporating ACOs into existing MCOs would allow each state to continue paying for most Medicaid service delivery on a full capitation basis, which would shift the financial risk and the unpredictability of enrollment and care volume to experienced MCOs. So I wanted to ask you if you could discuss the work that's being done to further align Medicare value-based efforts with Medicaid. And in addition to that equity focus of the ACO REACH model, what else is being done at a national level to expand the focus of APMs to Medicaid by including more providers serving low and modest income, racially diverse and rural populations? We are seeing a lot of interest in the Medicaid space in our membership. I would say more, more now than ever before for me, right? So I'm excited and really hopeful about the ability of some of these companies to work with clinicians who predominantly serve underserved communities and bring the resources and tremendous potential of accountable care to the Medicaid population. We've been spending a lot of time wrapping our arms around what that means. How do you drive these types of incentives when something like the Medicare Shared Savings Program isn't really an accessible option in Medicaid because you're dealing with every Medicaid program has its own sets of rules and its own priorities. And in particular, right now, so many states dealing with the redeterminations issue from COVID. So we've been really sitting down as a group and talking about if you had a magic wand, what are the things you'd want to align familiar to you from Medicare conversations, quality measures, MLR, other attribution, where are the sticking points? And then what are the areas that would be appropriate for us to recommend or start talking to states about taking a more harmonized approach? I think that is a long, long road. (laughs) We We have a lot of work to do, but I am very enthusiastic about it. We actually had one of our Medicaid provider organizations in Washington, D.C. this week to talk about all the great work that they're doing to expand access in communities, including leveraging pharmacy partnerships, addressing social need, making sure that folks have their preventive services and their access to primary care, and really being thoughtful about how care is delivered to that population. So I'm very encouraged, and I know we've got a lot of work ahead of us and really looking to leverage and partner with other organizations who have been doing this work in Medicaid for a long time. So excited about that work, and I really have enjoyed our conversation over the last hour. And I wanted to wrap up and talk about Healthcare Value Week. It's coming up soon, January 29th to February 2nd. There's a special virtual value-based payment summit that's offered in conjunction with Health Value Week, to which you are a leading co-chair. And this is an event that's free for anyone to attend. The speaker lineup is exceptional. And it has a veritable who's who of transformational leaders in the health value movement. Mara, could you provide our listeners with an overview of Healthcare Value Week and share some additional information about the upcoming summit? Yes, I'd be happy to. So Healthcare Value Week is an event that my colleague Chris McGovern and I put in place during a lot of the debate about direct contracting we talked about earlier in, in this podcast And our goal was to create a platform to provide broad-based education about all the great work going on in value-based care. So Healthcare Value Week is intended to be a advocacy and education week of action where we're sharing stories about accountable care. We're talking about policy. We're talking about what's worked, what hasn't worked, highlighting our successes, talking about the failures, (laughs) getting, getting our minds ready for what I'm sure will be an active 2024 and beyond in the policy space. You mentioned the Virtual Value-Based Payment Summit. That is available to anyone to register for free. We've got great speakers, including Dr. Mina Sashmani from the Center for Medicare, Dan Sai from the Center for Medicaid, Liz Fowler from the CMS Innovation Center. We just confirmed former Governor Kathleen Sebelius, who I'm super excited to hear from. And we're working on adding to the panels every day. We also have some of the leaders in accountable care, some from our membership, CBS Health, Agilon Health, Alidaid, who will be talking about different topics of interest, I'm sure, to your audience as we continue this to accelerate this transformation. In addition to the virtual content, which is which we've always done, this year we are going to have a live event in Washington, D.C. It's called Accountable for Health at Healthcare Value Week. So I would encourage folks who are going to be in D.C. or D.C. adjacent to check that out as well. 
That's going to be on February 1st at the Intercontinental Hotel at the Wharf. There's information on our website on the events page. And that also is free registration open to folks who want to come check it out. We will likewise have a series of policy topics and conversations around accountable care at that event and are super excited to welcome Andy Slavitt and Adam Bowler, I'm sure familiar to your audience, um, at that event to give a, a state of the union on accountable care as we head into the election. Because with all the topics we've talked about, we have not gotten to the fact that there is a presidential election next year. Lots going on for Value Week. There are other opportunities to plug in and engage. And I will say that Accountable for Health is one company among many stakeholder organizations. You can see the full listing of organizations at hcvalueweek.org, the Value Week website. And I would just encourage your audience to connect with us. We would love to have all the supporters that we can for this important movement. And yeah, but just encourage folks to be in touch. Thank you, Mara, for sharing information about Healthcare Value Week. I'm so excited about this event coming up in a few weeks and also for Accountable for Health and providing a call to action for people to find out more on your website. Is there any additional information that you could leave with our listeners that want to follow some of your thought leadership and stay apprised of some of the, the policies that Accountable for, for Health is working on? Absolutely. We have a newsletter that goes out every other Friday. And the best way to stay on top of what we're doing, get notices about our events, follow the news. We do a little policy roundup on Congress and the administration is to sign up for that newsletter. It's available on our website, accountableforhealth.org. And I think folks can also reach out to me directly. Our contact information, our social media is all there. So we just love to stay connected to people who found this conversation interesting and really want to thank you, Eric, for having me on. What a fun conversation. Indeed. Such a fun time with you, Mara, you know, today. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I hope we can do it again at some other point in the future. I hope so, too. Thank you.